principle in First Amendment law that says that the government cannot do indirectly what it cannot do directly. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what FOSTA SESTA did. It forced censorship upon a vast amount of speech on the internet. Welcome to On the Horizon, powered by SexWork CEO. A podcast about what's on the horizon for sex workers and how to navigate it. Hosted by Jesse Sage and Melrose Michaels. Who misses free and affordable ads and social networks without the anti-sex work rhetoric? Assembly 4 is a team of sex workers and technologists from Melbourne, Australia, aiming to bring back free and fair advertising and social spaces to the sex work community. They also give back to organizations based in harm reduction, sex work, and education. Stepping away from the clunky design of traditional platforms, their two products, Tris.link and Switter.at, are refreshing and well-needed changes in both presentation and mission. Both are free to join and open to all. In the words of an A4 user, from the policies to the language to the advice and tips, it makes such a big difference to feel encouraged and supported instead of policed. Check out their website, assembly4.com, for the word, not the number, for more info. Welcome to, what is this, episode five? Episode five already. Or we're moving right along. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, the, we said in the very first episode, so if you haven't watched that, you know, start at the beginning, start at episode one, where we introduce ourselves and what we're doing, but the first six episodes, we're going over the, like, social, political, institutional landscape that sex workers find themselves in. Today, we're talking about the criminalization of sex work. So um, prior to this, like everything we've talked about has been kind of um, both for sex workers in the legal sphere and mm-hmm. uh, sex workers who aren't criminalized is that how I should better say yeah. And then um, criminalized sex workers right now, what we're going to really focus on is the decrim movement and um, how that impacts sex workers who are criminalized, people who do full service sex work. Um, and um, although actually we talk about FOSTA SESTA a lot too, which has impacted online sex workers yeah. uh, tremendously. So, um, but we're, we want to tackle this idea of decriminalization, why decriminalization is important for sex workers, why decriminalization is different than legalization. Mm-hmm. We cover those issues and we have three three guests. We have Kate Diadamo, who is now working um, at The Hill. Um, mm-hmm. She does a lot of work with um, um, legislation and lobbying, and uh, she reads a lot of legal documents. Yeah, a ton of them. <laughs> and we're really grateful that she did it because I can't bring myself <laughs> to do it. Um, yeah. So she does that. Um, and she kind of brings us through like how decriminalization works like on a legislative level and on a city level and um, on a county level. And it's all really interesting. We talked to Emily Warfield, who is a social worker and activist and one of the co-owners of um the collective bookstore in New York, uh, Blue Stockings, which actually hosts a sex worker book um, section, which is awesome. That's really neat. Um, Yeah. yeah. And um, she talks a little bit about decriminalization from her perspective. And we talked to Larry Walters, Lawrence Walters from Walters Law Group, which is a law firm that focuses very specifically on First Amendment. And the reason that we talked to him is because he is in charge of the FOSTA-SESTA Woodhall um, 
or the Woodhall challenge to the mm-hmm. Foster, to Foster Sesta. So he is probably going to end up in front of the Supreme Court running, um, arguing to take down Foster Sesta. So go um, support him. Shakti came on our little Yeah. Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> this is a big win for all of you listening and us in general. Yeah. This is huge that we get that kind of information straight from the source. So that's yeah. fundamental. Right. So um, anyways, so this is a really um, heavy episode in the sense that we are going to be talking about legislation. We're going to be talking about trials. We're going to be talking about how laws are made and mm-hmm. we're going to be talking about how sex workers are criminalized yeah. and why we should care. And we should. We should care. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, the, the biggest takeaways for me really were out of this coming from, well, I mean, everyone had great takeaways, but Larry really took it home for me. Like yeah. having something explained to me from a legal standpoint um, and maybe the outside of the realm of how I'm usually hearing it, you know, we're usually yeah. dealing with the ramifications and what happens after we're not dealing with how it came to be or how it came to exist and what yeah. those intricacies in dealing with it in its existing form is. Right. So that was yeah. huge for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just, um, I mean, it was really interesting to talk to him uh, about how, um, you know, if FOSTA SESTA, like how ineffective it is. Well, Well, here's what I wanted to, here's what I'm thinking about. And now I'm like hesitating because I am not a lawyer and like this language is like really hard to wrap my head around. I feel like I'm stumbling. Like, I don't know, like when these things happen. Um, no, I think that what was really interesting to talk about is if Foster Sesta continues to be a law and if they can't, um, undo it. And if they, and if earn it, if the earn it act, um, another like follow up of FOSTA SESTA that ends encryption for the internet. Um, if those things continue to be, and if they go, if the antis go after Twitter next, which is the plan, the plan, um, that the internet as we know it is going to like cease to exist. And that is really important for sex workers because sex workers kind of we're on the front ends of yeah. the internet. You yeah. know? Um, it's important to free speech as a whole. I mean, yeah. you, it, it's interesting to see, especially coming out of, you know, a uh, Trump presidency, how yeah. impactful um, social media and platforms specifically yeah. can change a view of something yeah. or alter a view or something or interfere with information. So yeah. it, knowing that, you know, people or platforms can be held responsible versus the people saying the things on the platforms. Right. That's a big issue. You know? Yeah. It's interesting. If we go all the way back to episode two, where we had PJ on PJ was talking about how like early in his, in his career, um, that when he was doing internet research, there was all kinds of like internet scholars who were Mm -hmm. like, the internet's not real. It's cyberspace. Yeah. It's a place that like (laughs) is somehow disconnected from our reality to a Trump presidency where he's like legislating on Twitter. Yeah. On social media (laughs) platforms. Yeah. And to, to realize that like social media has been like the center it's become like a center of our world and for us as sex workers like the center of our commerce to think about that just being completely dismantled Mm -hmm. and um i think what's important about the internet that we is that it kind of democratized information in a way that like now sex workers can have their voices heard now we don't have just you know network tv but we have youtube channels yeah. with independent creators i mean this is also what happened in porn like porn followed the same model where yeah. it was like studio porn and there was porn stars and that was that was it there was gatekeepers yeah. to the cam world that just exploded with independent content creators that like losing free speech, losing the internet, losing our ability to communicate with one another makes us less safe. But it also means that 
all the information goes back to the gatekeepers. Yeah. The gatekeepers. It's it's powerful too, because when internet and like independent creation, even if you relate it strictly to porn, right? Porn is often a reflection of what's going on in society anyway. So, you know, Mm -hmm. if they're obviously racism in society, it plays out in porn where the biggest creators are the white, straight, pretty, you know, stereotypical, whatever creator. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you have this flourishing of independent creation in platforms that that allow that to thrive like a YouTube like a you know yeah. OnlyFans mm-hmm. like whatever mm-hmm. um, then you get the diversity that, right. because everyone has an equal place to at least stand yeah. on and yeah. then once that's gone is that really what we want we want to go back to the era where it's yeah. the few versus the many like that's not what we want right uh, yeah I mean I think that there's we get so much out of seeing people like our people like ourselves it not just, I'm not just speaking from my perspective, but everybody, you know, I've talked to a lot of, um, male viewers who say, you know, men who watch porn, who say, who may be overweight, for example, who say like, I really love to see people who are overweight because I don't think that I'll ever get this person. Like this doesn't feel like it's part of my sex life. It's not relatable. It's not relatable. But somebody who maybe looks like me, like I feel that's sexier to me. And Mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense. But I mean, this is just in terms of internet free speech, but I think we also go back to, we also spend a lot of time talking about um, decriminalization and uh, with Kate Diadamo and Emily. And I think that, one of the important like takeaways that I got from them is that, um, you know, we talk like decrim, 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 but that's just one step that yeah. there's like so many other things that we need to do to get, um, for sex workers to be safe. Yeah. Um, and to get our resources back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think it's an important thing to also just put out there before you start listening to this episode that even when we speak on decrim and that is something we are working towards, there is a flip side where decrim doesn't impact the most marginalized people. Yeah. They're still right. going to be targeted for other reasons. So right. mm-hmm. keep that in mind while you're listening because yeah, this might be a step or a progress in the right direction, but it also isn't entirely solving the problem. Right. And I think that both Kate and uh, Emily did a really good job of bringing up like how if they, if cops want to arrest you, they don't need prostitution laws. They arrest yeah. you based on all kinds of other things. And we see this play out like over and over again. So, so this is a systemic problem. Absolutely, <laughs> It's absolutely. not just how the laws are written. It's a, it's a huge systemic problem. So let's just get into our interviews. Yeah, let's bring it to light. Kate Diadamo is a queer, mixed race, hard femme and partner at Reframe Health and Justice and QT POC Collective working at the intersection of anti-violence harm reduction, and upending criminal legal systems. Kate believes in decriminalization and divestment and locates the power of change in communities determining their own futures and slightly smudged red lipstick. Hi, welcome, Kate. We're so happy to have you on the show. Good morning. Thank you guys so much. I'm really excited to chat with y'all. Yeah, can you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Kate Diadamo, um, and I have been a sex worker organizer for a, a long time. Um, I organized with Swap New York City for six, seven years. Um, and then I now do more kind of advocacy and policy work, um, including working on the federal level. So a lot of the trafficking bills that come through, I try to analyze them through the perspective of how is this going to impact sex workers, um, as well as do support for folks who are doing kind of local campaigns to engage and advocacy in different forms. Um, so especially for your listeners who want to reach out and, and just chat about that, um, that's actually the favorite 
part of what I get to do. Yeah, I mean, the the anti-trafficking movement is picking up so much steam. Like, what has that looked like for for you, like analyzing all of that stuff right now? Um, it's a lot of triage. And uh, actually, so the main trafficking legislation that uh, governs from the federal side anti-trafficking efforts in the United States is called the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. And it was passed in 2000. Every couple of years, it has to be reauthorized. And that's how they do kind of government funding, where it says, we're going to authorize X amount of money for 2000 to 2002. And in 2002, mm-hmm. they say, all right, cross out 2002 and put in 2005. Um, and so the real, the most recent reauthorization was actually introduced on September 3rd. And so um, that is kind of the biggest, you know, omnibus. They pack everything in the kitchen sink into this one bill. And so, uh, yeah, there's a lot of different provisions in a bill like that. And, you know, one of the tricky parts about working on the Hill, not just for advocates, but even for staffers and for allies is that, a lot of times a bill will come down and unless you really know what to look for, you don't realize that it's going to have a disproportionate impact on folks that trade sex. What are those things that we should be looking for for the people listening to kind of keep their eyes and ears open? Yeah. And right now, in terms of the federal landscape, there's um, a few there's a few places where it becomes more impactful in terms of like bills themselves. Um, everyone is right now talking about what oversight of the Internet looks like. Yeah. Um, And so a lot of those bills are pretty tricky because it's not just the U.S. uh, government and institutions saying, all right, this is illegal. It's saying, hey, we're going to give some broad recommendations. And you, private company, who's more concerned about your bottom line and your branding than anything else, Mm -hmm. you interpret this and you figure out what it means. Yeah. Yeah. And so that can be really tricky. And so looking at... Um, a lot of the digital oversight bills, um, some of the financial pieces, we know um, how outsized the impact of like MasterCard and Visa saying, well, we're not going to work with this website. We know the impact of that. We know how you lose access to sites and resources. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, anti-trafficking bills and anti-policing bills. And with trafficking, if it just says sex trafficking, that means a couple things. Okay. Um because right now, under under the uh, crime of trafficking, it's actually split into two. And this was really purposeful when they defined it. It defined, exploit, uh, so trafficking is exploitation through force, fraud, or coercion. Okay. And it split it into two different kinds. And it said on one side, it is exploitation in the sex industry. Okay. The other crime is exploitation in literally every other commercial transaction and every other form of employment. Wow. And so a lot of times, one of the things that pops up really clearly is, is this a change in legislation that only impacts the sex industry? Or is it something that they believe in enough to apply it to every single industry out there? The Um, other thing to look for is, is this money going to labor investigators? Is it going to people looking at uh, workplace discrimination? Or is it going to frontline cops and vice squads? And so it's things like that, that, you know, if you know, if you don't know what you're looking for, and I say this because my heart goes out to the staffers who have to read this and guess yeah, misinformation yeah. about what this is going to look like. Right. Um, that's one of the big red flags is do they believe enough in this interve- intervention to apply it to every single trafficking victim 
or do they believe in it enough to only try to screw over the sex trade? Yeah, yeah, that's all so interesting. And I think um, I completely agree with that. We wanted to talk to you a little bit today about like um, decriminalization, what's happening like within the decrim movement. And I was wondering if you could like um, give kind of a brief overview of like decrim and why sex workers in particular are interested in, in decrim. I mean, I know this goes back to what you were saying in terms of like the John Bills and like in demand. And um, so, yeah, I'll just let you pick up where you where you want. <laughs> Yeah, you know, the push for decriminalization has exploded in the last couple of years. It's been absolutely staggering and so exciting. Um, this session alone, uh, you know, we added so many states to the places that have had a full decriminalization bill. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, COVID made that really difficult because it made organizing really difficult. And especially for a community that was so engaged in mutual aid and in support and saying, you know what? This is not our priority anymore. Literally just getting money to our folks is our priority. Yeah. Um, things kind of became challenging in the last year and a half, unsurprisingly. But that doesn't mean the momentum is gone. And yeah. so in the last couple of years, we have seen some incredible things. We saw uh, D.C., which is its own district. So there's 50 states in one district, mm -hmm. um, introduce <laughs> a criminalization bill and... I just like to go over the big, just to make sure everyone's on the same page. <laughs> have not only a decriminalization bill for the district, but a hearing in front of the committee that was actually going to vote on it, which is the first time that that's happened. Mm -hmm. In Louisiana, we saw a hearing for a decriminalization bill. Louisiana was the first in the true South to introduce a full decriminalization bill. But we've also seen bills in New York State, which would be massive. Um, mm -hmm. New York has a lot of arrests. Um a decriminalization bill in Vermont and in Oregon. Um, and that's just uh, the, that's just a few states and that's full decriminalization. We've also seen um, attempts to repeal loitering bills in California, which is working its way through as we speak. Um, the next vote is coming up um, and, and looks like it's it's going to go forward. Um, New York repealed its loitering statute um, and a number of places have been discussing that as well as you know, even prosecutors saying we're not going to prosecute this anymore. People right. exchanging sex for money is not going to waste my office's time anymore. And so we've seen progressive prosecutors in across the country talk about that. Right. I want to um, interrupt you for a second because I want to talk about two things um, that uh, first of all, I want you to just kind of talk about why lawyering Um but like why this is even important for people who don't understand like how loitering bills are used to um, discriminate against sex workers. But also like I'm interested in talking about um, why uh, I think it's important for a lot of sex workers to know that like when DAs say that they're no longer going to prosecute um, trading sex, that, that doesn't mean that arrests necessarily stop. So like, I, oh, okay. uh, <laughs> yeah, if you could first like just kind of define what the loitering laws are and then kind of move into how this is, how this kind of goes down. Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, so uh, there's every aspect of sex work is criminalized. We're actually the most criminalized country in the global north as far as what actual actions are criminalized. So under most prostitution laws, it is... Uh, Prostitution is the, the actual exchange of sex for resources. Outside of that, solicitation is criminalized in most states. And that's just the conversation. So if prostitution is the actual exchange, solicitation is either asking or receiving um, or having an agreement that you're going to trade sex for money on either side. Then even beyond that, 
is loitering for the purposes of prostitution. And this is really important because it is a profiling based crime. And so when I was an organizer in New York and also when I worked with legal services in New York, what was happening was loitering is just kind of being in an area. And what happens under loitering for the purposes of prostitution is that an arresting officer will say, based on your behavior and based on my assumptions about you, I'm going to assume that you're here for the purpose of trying to trade sex and you don't actually have to have the conversation. And what was considered evidence in a lot of the cases that were coming in were things like how you were dressed. It was that you were in an area known for prostitution. And I lived in Brooklyn. So New York City, kind of an area known for prostitution. And, <laughs> and it was also um, very anti-LGBTQ, uh, specifically against trans women, because it would say things like you are not wearing gender conforming clothing. They would cite things like, well, you present as a woman, but you have an Adam's apple. Um, and based exclusively on that. And one of the other things that came up a lot was you have condoms on. And so that was being considered evidence. And it wasn't that they even had a conversation. It wasn't that anything happened. It was, I saw you and you ticked a few boxes and I'm going to arrest you. Yeah, and so when I was organizing in Pittsburgh, that was a really big issue because not only were they using those as evidence, but they were using them to trump up charges of having an instrument of crime. Wow. And exactly. So yeah. Bad. Yeah. I mean, they, they claim that they're not doing it, but now they also use cell phones for that reason. Like a cell phone is an instrument of crime and a condom is an instrument of crime. And the other thing I talked to someone and they were like, I, I really hate to bum you out, but you know, the other thing that gets vouchered uh, in one specific grouping, he was like, they, uh, this person was saying, um, yeah, after condoms, it's that you've cash on you. And I was like, we're not allowed to carry cash. That's insane. <laughs> yeah. And so the reason why loitering is so important to pull off is because especially in specific urban areas, it's it might be the highest charge that people are receiving. Um, and after that, it really disproportionately impacts especially femmes of color and especially trans femmes of color um, and especially low income femmes. Um, and so because the bar is so low to an arrest, that has not only been a really important piece to um, uh, pull off, but it's been something that has gotten a lot of attention and a lot of allies to really understand the impact and the weight of policing and criminalization on sex workers and just people profiled as sex workers. Because that's the other thing is a lot of folks were coming through to talk about their charges who were like, look, I, I would tell you if I was trading sex that night and I was not. I was going to the grocery store in my own neighborhood and they were getting arrested. And so it's not just a numbers game. It's also the bar is so offensively low for just destroying someone's life. How do, it's amazing that someone can just go like police in terms of you're guilty without any proof, like without any physical evidence or all circumstantial or my opinion of you or my assumption of you. How are you guilty until proven innocent in this line of work versus everything else that the country stands for or the legislation stands for? It's insane. I, yeah. And well, the thing is, let's say you had the time and the money and the resources to take off from work to actually go through the trial of that. Mm -hmm. That's not everyone. And that's actually not a lot of people. And so what often happens is we're going to bring you in. We're going to trump up charges. We're going to say, you know what, if you're found guilty of this, you have to spend 90 days in jail 
good luck having a job, what's going to happen to your kids, what's going to happen to yeah. your, uh, your housing. Or you could plea down and plea out and we'll get you out tonight and we'll give you time served because you spent the weekend in jail. Yeah. And it because is, doesn't that also end up on your record and add up to possible more charges in the future? Just a cycle. Mm-hmm. That's insane. You're not wrong. misdemeanors it is a very very broken system and i think that that is you know one of the things that we can talk about all of the different areas of of policy and legislation that impact folks that treat sex which is a huge umbrella like it is a, a lot of different experiences that don't look similar and when we look at things like loitering, when we look at prostitution, when we look at who's getting picked up, especially on lower level charges, it is such an indicator of how broken our system is um, and how much just core foundational work needs to be done. Yeah. I want to just clarify, too. How, how do you clarify decriminalization by leg, uh, legalization, the difference between the two? That's a great question, um, especially because in a lot of aligned movements, it's not the same. And so mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's really tricky um, and I encourage everyone uh I know I have to do this sometimes where someone says legalization when they mean decriminalization and it's because they come from a movement that has a completely Mm -hmm. different relationship to those two words. Right. Um, Like would you consider like the marijuana movement to be an example of that? That is actually the primary space where uh, we're saying the the core is the same and our language is just different. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And everyone gets tripped up. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so for sex work, you know, decriminalization is because I was saying every aspect is criminalized. So prostitution, solicitation, loitering, and then uh, as far too many of us are, are aware, buyers, sellers, but everyone around you is also criminalized. So it's things like receiving funds, um, that you know were received through prostitution. And so, you know, I'm a sex worker and I pay my rent and cash to my roommate. And all of a sudden, if I'm transparent about what I do, they're in violation. If someone drives me to a session because I don't want to take the subway at one o'clock in the morning, um, all of those kind of things yeah. are coming. Partners who are sharing groceries with money gained from prostitution, all sorts of things. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Peers giving a referral or ask someone, asking someone to do a duo, all of a sudden you are procuring someone for purposes of prostitution. And that's often a higher charge. And so decriminalization would just pull all criminal penalties for consensual, nonviolent, not exploitative commercial sex off the books. So okay. violence is all still criminalized. Trafficking mm-hmm. and exploitation still criminalized. And granted, I we can have a lot of conversations about uh, the efficacy and, and the utility and mm-hmm. what it means to have a criminal penalty to things that are like violence and what it means to resolve them through the criminal system. We can mm-hmm. totally talk about that. But under decriminalization, no one's advocating for pulling those off the books. It's just right. consensual, adult, um, non-violent, non-exploitative exchange of sex for resources. And okay. that becomes not a criminal activity. Um, and it's only right now, the only two places in the world where sex work is fully decriminalized in, is New Zealand for everyone who's a citizen. So it's still um, a penalty for migrants and New South Wales, which is a province in Australia. Um, okay. and, and I'm sure everyone already knows, but when we're talking about places that public health call the uh, safest, healthiest sex industries in the country or in the world, you're talking about decriminalized locations. 
Legalization, on the other hand, it's really prominent in Europe is where you're going to see most legalization schemes. And it's where there is a government imposed structure and, a, and generally a very high barrier to participate in the sex industry. And it looks a little different in the places where it is because most legalization structures came out of just codifying kind of what was already going on. So they were saying like, we have these patchwork of laws, we need to kind of formalize this. And so there was kind of a wave of legalization mm -hmm. um, throughout, especially like the 90s in, in Europe. And so that imposes every, it looks different everywhere. So it imposes regulations uh, differently. Um, so in some places you'll have like a red light district. So it has to happen in this one space. In some places you'll have to register in a certain way. And so the licensing, fees and information might be really challenging. But the reason ultimately why folks go towards decriminalization versus legalization is because legalization is not how we treat uh, other industries. And oftentimes it's still really based on government intervention. It's still hyper controlled. And the people that don't have access to a lot of those places, which are often very management controlled as well, are going to be migrants. They're going to be people with disabilities. They're going to be people who struggle to access formal labor already. And those are the most marginalized in sex work. And so we don't want to re-marginalize people yeah. through these structures. Um, uh, Nevada has a legalization scheme where brothel-based sex work is um, legal. In it, It's not that extensive and it's not in Las Vegas. Um, mm -hmm. And every county is allowed to legalize brothels but it's only in those specific brothels. So it's once again, very dependent on management. And Nevada is actually the highest arrest state for people working independently in the entire country. Interesting. I heard that. Yeah. Wow. Oh, it's, if you look at the like per capita numbers, cause I do, cause I'm a nerd. Um, <laughs> but for a while, the average, like over a couple of years, the number like two, three, four was generally, you're talking about California, Texas, Florida, lots of policing, um, and it all had really similar rates as far as per capita rates of arrest. Nevada was 10 times higher than wow. the number two slot. Right, right. We're going to have to wrap up. Where can people find you and your work? Um, I am with a, a consulting collective called Reframe Health and Justice. Um, you can find my email there. We work kind of at the intersection of healing justice and harm reduction. So, mm -hmm. um, a lot of times it's FEMS accessing uh, harm reduction services. So we actually work doing trainings and support around sex work, but also around uh, women and FEMS that use drugs uh, and uh, are, are looking at the different ways that FEMS identify harm. Mm -hmm. um, the other place you can always find me is on Twitter. Um, I'm at Diodamo. Um, and I really do encourage people, you know, if you're working on an issue in your local area, the thing that feeds my soul and my heart is to figure out ways to try to support people in, in those efforts to kind of make change in the way that honors them and their needs in their lives. Um, so yeah, totally feel free to follow me and also feel free to reach out. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. It was so nice to, it's always yes. nice to talk to you. I really appreciate all Thanks the work that you're doing. Thanks for coming on the show. This has been great. Thank you both <laughs> so much. I'm uh, so excited to just see how these conversations grow and what you do with them. Emmeline Delora Warfield is a sex worker and survivor advocate, abolitionist, LMSW, and sometimes writer and zinester. She put her own zine on hold to focus on her role as zine coordinator and community social worker at Blue Stockings, a cooperatively owned radical queer bookstore and community space in the Lower East Side of New York City. 
Hi, Emily. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. I like your mask. Yeah, thanks. welcome to the show. It's very hard for people to take me seriously when I'm wearing it. Um, I was just <laughs> talking with my friend here that I should just start wearing a series of like increasingly ridiculous masks until I'm in like full Daft Punk headgear. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Can you introduce yourself? Sure. Um, so I am a, that's the best order to say these things in. Um, I'm a current sex worker, but um, often just describe myself as a sex worker advocate for like deniability reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm also, I just got my license, uh, my social work license. So um, nice, that's congrats. what this like yeah. thin level of plausible deniability is about. <laughs> and I'm also one of the worker owners at Blue Stockings, which is um, queer, trans, sex worker owned um, bookstore, cafe, and community activist center on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Yeah, so we wanted to talk to you a little bit about like decrim today, and. Um, I'm curious uh, if you can talk a little bit about like why sex workers are in particular pushing for decrim. Sure. Um, so this was like kind of the focus of a lot of the academic work that I did um, mm-hmm. and has been a focus of a lot of the activist work I've done. Um, and so besides the obvious reasons of just like not wanting to be arrested and mm-hmm. yeah. the- theoretically have the protection of the law the way that other people theoretically have the protection of the law, mm-hmm. um, to think more about how um, it impacts all other areas of what we're trying to do. Um, because it's, you know, you can't form a union if your work is criminalized. Um, you can't access, you have no right to access financial services. Um, it's still Mm -hmm. against the code of conduct at certain universities to do sex work. Mm -hmm. It's used against you in child custody cases. And like, not that any of that immediately changes, but to suddenly not have people be able to point and say, you're doing this illegal thing impacts a lot of the other things we fight for as well um so that in addition to like having it be part of i think this move away from policing as the way we deal with social problems or you Mm -hmm. know yeah social problems however we're looking at that yeah yeah i think that that's that's important so like what sort of um what sort of political threats do you um, and laws do you think are like the biggest um, problems for like sex workers right now? Um, so in New York, looking at, oh my gosh, and I pulled this up on my laptop because I can never remember the name of either one of these bills because they sound very similar on purpose. <laughs> um, there are two competing bills right now, just kind of like idling in the New York state legislator, legislature. Um, One is the Stop Violence in the Sex Trades Act, which is S3075. Um, And that is the one that will fully decriminalize sex work in New York State. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's an opposing bill, S6040, Sex Trade Survivors Justice and Equality Act. And that is the partial criminalization um, Nordic model bill. And neither of them has made progress recently, but like they're just kind of idling there. Can you give a brief overview for people who aren't familiar with the Nordic model of like what partial uh, decrim is and how that's different than full decrim? 
Yeah. Um, so partial, I call it partial criminalization because I just like to make clear like what it actually does. Um, <laughs> right, it, right. Right. I mean, right now in pretty much everywhere in the United States, although these these things are um, legislated at the state level. So uh, every aspect of the sex trade is fully criminalized right now. What the Nordic model would do, and interestingly enough, it has never passed in a jurisdiction with full criminalization. Um, mm-hmm. It's only ever passed in, in a jurisdiction where there was a lower level of criminalization than what we have now. So it's hard to predict exactly what would happen, but um, it would remove um, the selling sex. It would remove that from the criminal code. So that would no longer be criminalized, um, but literally everything else would. And so in practice, what happens is the ways that sex workers work continue to be criminalized, like working together, sharing an in-call. Anyone who makes money from a sex worker, including your landlord, including, um, you know, your partner who you split Mm -hmm. bills with. Um, And so in practice, people are still getting arrested and evicted and deported. And then because of this sort of, Uh, the way that clients are like, well, now I'm criminalized more than you, even though in practice that's not true. They then um, have more power in the negotiation process. They have more leverage in terms of not screening. Um, Street-based workers report that, you know, clients are afraid of police, so they ask to meet in more um, desolate industrial locations Mm -hmm. away from the center of the city. And so that becomes more dangerous for sex workers. And like in Mm -hmm. all jurisdictions where this has been enacted, violence has increased, um, health outcomes have gone down. And it's very clear at this point, like there was some debate for a while, like, well, we just really don't know. It's like, no, we do know at this point that it would be worse. Um, And actually in Manhattan, in either late April or early May, um, the district attorney stopped prosecuting prostitution arrests. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I have not really heard anything about how that's played out in practice because police can still make those arrests. Right, they can right. also just, again, they can just arrest you for something else. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. My clients don't really even seem to be vaguely aware of that. Um, (laughs) so I don't, it's like in theory, we have the Nordic model just in practice, but I don't know that like, that's actually, I don't know how that's actually working out right now. I think it's like too soon to say what's happening. Um, and that's still like the DA has discretion of what crimes they're going to prosecute. It doesn't change the way the law is written. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So like what? What do you think that like, so I know that you said that there's these two bills that are going through, like that are sitting there in New York. Like, what do you think that we could do like as a community to like push for more, um, for, for decrim? Like how, what sort of efforts have you seen and what do you think we need more of to make the laws more favorable for sex workers? Okay. So this was, I wrote a paper on, on the actual lobbying efforts around these bills and it's just so unequal in terms of funding, like the money Mm -hmm. behind the Nordic model bill is just 
wild compared to, I mean, this is another thing that criminalization does is like, mm. it makes it very hard for us to get money for anything. Yeah. yeah. So like, we don't, we don't have lobbyists as much as they like to say like pimp lobby, pimps would, would not want to see full decriminalization. That makes pimps less necessary. Um, yeah. You know, unless we're actually looking at the legal definition of pimp, which is just anyone who profits financially from sex work in any way, which is usually sex workers who share space and our partners and our landlords, you know, but like in the cartoonish idea of the pimp, it's like, they actually really don't want this. Um, But yeah, no one would, it's, it's a weird issue because like no one really profits financially from either of these bills. And so there's not a lot of money going into lobbying behind them, but the other side has a lot more of that, like nonprofit Christian fundamentalist money and like the mainstream feminist nonprofit money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I always find it really interesting that, that you get, there's all the money that comes into, you know, supporting the Christian ideal ideals in our legislation, even though, you know, separation church and state, all that. But then when it comes to us being so heavily taxed on our work, especially like the, non-criminalized versions of sex work we are paying taxes and we are you know supposed to have representation for our needs in our community but then we still don't but then the christians can throw money behind anything i've I've always paid taxes as a sex worker just because it was my only way of proving my income and therefore my only way of accessing like any sort of mainstream financial resource like Mm -hmm. the only way that i was able to get like loans for school able to get on a lease able to get a credit card was because i paid taxes like right I I don't think that like the rate of criminalized sex workers not paying taxes like I don't think it's that much higher than like a lot of other people not paying taxes. Right. <laughs> I don't think so either. <laughs> um or at least a lot of other like people who are self-reporting their income mm-hmm. um right. freelancers etc. Right. Yeah. 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 Um but yeah, it's I if you want like a really good history of how this alliance between like the right-wing Christians and the like liberal feminists came about um Elizabeth Bernstein's uh brokered subjects is like the history of that and it's really fascinating and she then extends it into like there's now a third member of the alliance which is like global capitalist corporations are now really on board with this Mm. um, quote unquote Mm. anti-trafficking stuff because it takes some of the heat off of their labor practices to be like, oh, we donated all this money to like, you know, whatever bullshit organization that like doesn't actually provide services or prevention, just like throws money into lobbying that there's Mm. more money for like the anti-trafficking stuff, which is how this all gets conflated is that like, Um, No one is like pro-trafficking, at least in theory. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So it's a lot easier to get people to throw money at it, but it's Mm -hmm. a really good cover for like increased border patrol and increased law enforcement funding and like all of these really like right-wing nationalistic kind of things that actually just make the problem worse but sorry this is a lot I that's the problem is that like there's a, it's kind of like anytime you try to talk about one of these things it just like opens up this like gaping cavern of like all of these other issues that are connected right. to it what do you think like beyond just like decriminalization that like sex worker groups are fighting for so I know that like there's a lot of uh, you actually said this earlier in the interview that like um, decrim is like one step and there's so many other things. Like what else do you think is important for uh, sex workers to be fighting for? 
I think we do a lot of direct action, mutual aid kind of work. Um, mm-hmm. Like one of the things that just really struck me while I was finishing this this concentration policy was just how painfully slow the process is. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And how, you know, we can't wait another 10 years not doing anything else, but we are mm-hmm. doing yeah. other things. Um And I think the way that mutual aid funds sprung up at the start of the pandemic, um, because so many sex workers had trouble accessing government aid, or at least Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for a while, or it wasn't enough, or like, you know, maybe they didn't report their income. And that was another thing that I was very lucky that I was like, wow, I'm glad I paid taxes on this, because otherwise... I wouldn't have gotten the, the pandemic unemployment assistance and a lot of sex workers for various reasons did not, but we were right. able to like organize these mutual aid funds and provide like direct relief to people really immediately. And I think our communities are really good at doing that sort of direct work. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something that I've become more interested in is like, I want to see what we can do right now without having to wait for like the approval of the state and for all of these people who do have money and power, like what, what can we do for each other right now? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's so important. Um, Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, do you think that there's a way to bridge that gap between like the second wave feminist and these movements on decrim? Do you think there's a way to bridge that, like the communication gap that we see in terms of like someone I guess saying like, okay, we're on board for the anti-abortion um, in, or we're not on board for that. We want autonomy over body, but then they don't seem to understand the concept of autonomy, autonomy over your body across the board. Do you think there's a way to have that conversation effectively? You know, I used to think so. And I used to put a lot of energy into doing that because mm-hmm. um, interestingly enough, I was like a teenage swerf. Um, oh, and, really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing. It's amazing how fast your perspective changed changes when like you lose economic privilege and all of a sudden you are in that position of having to trade sex for rent money Mm -hmm. that like I was like hey guys maybe you can hear me since I've been on like both sides of this and I inhabit this weird like liminal space of like I have a lot of privileges and I also have like a lot of oppression like I mean so do a lot of people but I think in a way that is harder for them to tell because like I'm someone who can speak their language right uh, you know and then I just realized that like, at, you know, I think other other younger people like, yes, I think it's possible to bring them over because they're still evolving. But I think mm-hmm. at some point, you know, somebody who like their job is the, as the like CFO of one of these organizations, right. all of their interests are opposed right. to like ever growing intellectually. You know, they would have to give up their source of income. They would have to give up all of their relationships. They would have to rebuild mm-hmm. like everything about their lives. Yeah. And there's just not that incentive there. And I guess you could say the same thing about us, but like I would be making a lot more money if I like turned trader and decided yeah. to go over to theirs, you know, yeah, because they, they, have, they have the funding. We yeah. don't have the funding. Yeah. Um, and so for that reason alone, like, I just think it's kind of a, a waste of time. And so I, I think it's better to look at, like, who else can we bring over to our side and, mm-hmm. like, build coalitions with other people who are already on the same page about, like, the harms of policing. Um, and, yeah, I think there's a lot of more, like, leftist, like, anarchist um 
or even just like people who are into criminal justice reform who are easier to sway on this than mm-hmm, yeah. any sort of moneyed feminist whose like interests are just it would be way too much for them to give up yeah I wonder too, do you think that, because like I come from more of an online sex worker space personally. So for me, a lot of this information is even new and nuanced, but do you think that there's a way that the online sex work community in terms of, you know, this revolution with OnlyFans and the pandemic and forcing all these people into online forums that they can more effectively help push decrim for actual full service sex workers? It's a good question. I've heard like two schools of thought on this. And one is that like, sex workers are so diverse that like in some ways it doesn't make sense for us to all be organizing around the same thing because like we experience things so differently and maybe it makes Mm -hmm. more sense to just like support that movement. Mm -hmm. Um, But on the other hand, it's like, and this was a point that I had made, like I wrote an essay about OnlyFans and the way that like, I I was one of the many people who started doing online sex work for the first time in the pandemic. and that overlap, that there is that overlap between people who do online sex work and people who are doing yeah. in-person sex work. Um, and the point that I had made is like, things are only as legal as like the people in power want them to be. Like if they, yeah, right. if they want to take something away from you, they will figure out the pretense to do it. Like even if yeah, it's true. technically legal. And again, you'll see that with abortion, it's like uh, abortion is still t- technically legal, right? Like, mm-hmm. isn't like Roe v. Wade is still the law of the land, but we're going to figure out a way around that. Um, so to just be like, you know what guys, like we're not that far removed. Um, yeah. we're, if, if they want to take away our access to banking, like, yeah, we'll come yeah. up with a way to do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think those are all really good points and probably a good place to end. Like where can people find you and your work? Oh my God. Okay. So I've been saying for, yeah, your only fans piece was really good. So maybe yeah. you plug that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I wrote a piece for Mike on like, it was a personal essay on like, um, connecting the deplatforming of OnlyFans to like other forms of violence that sex workers experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would say find me on Twitter at Emily D Warfield. I've been saying for months that I'm going to like launch these zines and then daily life gets in the way Um, (laughs) but I'm this is now an incentive for me to actually do that because like hopefully more people will come and look me up and then I can have a thing to like be like buy this (laughs) here's my thing (laughs) yeah 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 well it was really good to talk to you yeah this was amazing thank you so much yeah thank you I really look forward to like seeing where you guys go with this podcast Lawrence G. Walters heads up the Walter Law Group, an AV-rated law firm concentrating on internet law, intellectual property, gaming, and First Amendment issues. Mr. Walters has developed a passion for protecting civil liberties, in particular, online speech and expression. Mr. Walters is an accomplished civil rights advocate, a widely published author, and a well-known public speaker. Hi, Larry. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Jesse. Nice to see you. (laughs) Nice to see you, too. Can you introduce yourself? Happy to. Uh, I'm Lawrence Walters. I'm a First Amendment attorney. I work with Lo- Walters Law Group. I'm based in Central Florida. Uh, we represent clients all over the United States, all over the world, actually, and uh, been focused on free speech issues, uh, the rights to sexual freedom, and First Amendment issues during uh, the vast majority of my career. Uh, we tend to represent largely website operators and content producers and uh, 
posts and, and others who are involved in the adult entertainment industry. And uh, so you've been very good. busy since yeah. 2018. <laughs> no question about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, FOSTA really kind of threw uh, the internet for a loop and, uh, a lot of people coming to our firm for advice and try to figure this whole thing out. So yes, we have been busy. Yeah, yeah. So do you want to, I mean, most most of our audience is very familiar with FOSTA, SESTA, but do you want to just kind of give a brief overview in case somebody's listening yeah. to it that's wants <laughs> yeah, to learn? There might be one or two people out there that haven't heard about what's going on, but uh, yes, so FOSTA, SESTA, uh, a law passed in 2018, uh, April of 2018, uh, something that Congress has been kind of debating for a few years before that, uh, trying to figure out basically how do we take down Backpage? You know, that was uh, what they have been really wrestling with for years. Um, the state attorneys in various different states throughout the U.S. have been trying to go after Backpage under various different criminal and civil theories um, because they didn't like the advertisements that were being posted on Backpage and felt that um, they were allowing prostitution to occur or sex trafficking. And so they brought you know, a number of lawsuits against Backpage, and they all failed, largely because of Section 230, which is a federal law um, that says that website operators, platform operators are not responsible for the content of user posts. And right. uh, the attorney generals did not like that at all. And so they pressured Congress year after year to try to pass something, an exception uh, to Section 230 that would allow them to go after and shut down Backpage. And you know, what was left out of that conversation from the beginning was the federal government always had the ability to shut down Backpage. They have federal laws uh, that can be applied to website operations. You know, the websites were operating internationally and using interstate commerce. So that's usually something that the federal government would deal with, not the mm -hmm. states. And that was the kind of the disconnect. You know, these states attorneys didn't realize that we're dealing with interstate commerce here. That's the province of the federal government. And there are federal laws that deal with, you know, using a website to promote prostitution or sex trafficking. So those laws were always on the books. And Section 230 had no impact on federal criminal law. It was always an exception to Section 230. So, so you know, the, understanding that Backpage went down before FOSTA-SESTA passed anyway. Yeah, that's that's really the irony. You know, the, the for mm -hmm. years, uh, the attorneys generals were asking, you know, to shut down Backpage and said that, we can't do it. There's no way to do it unless you give us this exception to Section 230 and allow us to shut down Backpage. Um, but as it turns out, the DOJ, the Department of Justice, mm -hmm. actually did shut down Backpage before right. FOSTA-SESTA was even passed. And yeah. you know, some of the promoters, some of the lawmakers that were active in promoting FOSTA-SESTA tried to spin that as a success of FOSTA-SESTA. Well, we got this law passed and now we shut down, down Backpage, but the two had nothing to do with each other. Uh, Backpage mm -hmm. was uh, prosecuted based on money laundering and racketeering laws that had been on the books for you know 40 years and could always have been used if, if the government wow. wanted to. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's what they used to, um, to essentially shut down. Now, the site got shut down because the government talked the operator of Backpage into a plea deal uh, where the operator handed over Backpage to the government. So the government didn't actually shut down Backpage. Backpage shut itself down by offering itself up under a forfeiture agreement uh, to the government. And now there's a current prosecution going on against the former owners of Backpage. And that trial uh -huh. is actually going on right now. Interesting. Interesting. So, yeah. yeah. Back to FOSTA SESTA, you know, the government passed this law that created an exception to Section 230 mm -hmm. and allowed platforms to be prosecuted 
or sued based on the content of user communications, user submitted yeah. content. And uh, they also threw in something else uh, that nobody really asked for, which was a prohibition on promotion or facilitation of prostitution. And you know, this this FOSTA sets the law and, and the impetus behind the law was always an effort to try to cut back on sex trafficking. And all the initial versions of the bill were limited solely to holding these platform operators responsible for sex trafficking activities that occurred on the site. And during one of the committee hearings, uh, one of the senators decided, you know what, as long as we're going after sex trafficking, let's throw in prostitution and consensual sex work because it's all kind of the same, right? And without understanding at all the impact that such a prohibition would have on platform operators and on sex workers themselves. Uh, and right. so now, you know, years later, we're left with the uh, the wreckage of FOSTA-SESTA, which was, you know, a, a, a vast censorship of online speech, a number of platforms and websites simply shutting down or moving overseas, and sex workers themselves being uh, pushed into a very dangerous form of sex work without being able to use the online safety tools and safe date lists and exchange of information that they relied on for, for many years, uh, but instead having to fend for themselves without that information, often um, pushed into the most dangerous form of, of um, sex work, which is street work. And yeah. you know, we've seen uh, statistics showing that you know, murder rates and, and violence against sex workers went up dramatically after FOSTA-SESTA passed, as mm-hmm. we all said it would, uh, it, but right. you know, the, the lawmakers did not listen to sex workers never held any hearings that allowed sex workers to speak and offer their viewpoint, Um, they would have been educated very clearly because sex workers knew exactly what was going to happen if they included this in the law. But um, their voice was not heard. And uh, we are now left with, you know, this dangerous law on the books. For FOSTA-SESTA, so how how would you say from your perspective as someone working with law, how has it affected the digital aspect of sex work versus the in-person, the physical? That's made it almost impossible um, to be able to use digital communications for sex work. Uh, there's some, you know, encrypted messages, applications, and so forth that have remained largely because um, the government and the operators of those networks don't have access to the content of the communications. Um, mm-hmm. So nobody really knows what's being said on those platforms. And there is currently an effort now uh, in Congress, first through the Earn It Act and through some yeah. other pieces of legislation to go after encrypted communications because the government wants to know what people are saying uh, at all times and wants the providers of those encrypted apps to be able to give the government a backdoor and access into uh, the private communications of free citizens in the United States. And that's a a very contentious uh, piece of legislation and debate that's going on now in Capitol Hill. Uh, I don't know if it will pass a number of the uh, providers of encrypted communication said, we'll just simply pull out of the United States if they yeah. pass a bill like mm-hmm. that, um, because there's there's no way they're going to give you know the government access to those private communications. But you know that's where the, the action is really uh, in terms of sex workers being able to communicate. That's all that's left because all of mm-hmm. the large platforms uh, that had previously offered you know these communication tools and information or advertising for sex workers so that they could you know take their business into their own control and be able to operate online and, and communicate with their uh, with their clients and with their fellow sex workers. Uh, many of those tools had been taken down and it's only those who are willing to take some risks or perhaps are based or over, out, um, outside of the United States overseas who believe that you know, FOSTA-SESTA may not be applied to them 
those are the ones that are left. Um, but you know, it's, it's slim pickings, and there's there's very few options as compared to 2018. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you. You you brought this up, but how is um, the current like banking discrimination against like sex workers? Uh, how does that tie into this, and does it, or do you think these are like just parallel issues? Yeah, it's it's one of the most interesting things that I've seen over the last you know, 10 years or so, which is this dramatic shift from being concerned about the government censoring speech to being more concerned about private entities, banks, platform operators, credit card processors, being the ones who are really in control of what can be said online. Yeah. And you know, it, it, it's interesting because the government found with FOSTA-SESTA a way to get private actors to do their dirty work. Right. Yeah. Uh, to force these platforms yeah. to censor speech, which is something they could never do on their own because of the First Amendment concerns. Um, but, you know, we have a, a, a principle in First Amendment law that says that the government cannot do indirectly what it cannot do directly. And mm -hmm. that's exactly what FOSTA SESTA did. It forced censorship upon a vast amount of speech on the Internet. I mean, we saw you know, Facebook and Tumblr and Instagram and so many large platforms pass all these highly restrictive community guidelines and standards after FOSTA was passed. You know, a lot of them won't admit that that was the reason, but we all know that's the reason. Uh, they're, they're all of a sudden exposed to 25 years in prison if they allow somebody to facilitate prostitution on Facebook or Instagram. You know, what are their lawyers going to tell them? What, what's the board of directors going to say? Uh, you know, get us as far away from that as possible. Don't allow any sexually oriented speech because we don't want any risk of spending the rest of our life in prison. And yeah. you know, that has been the dynamic that's gone on. Uh, like I said, there, there have been some, you know, freedom fighters out there and, and some platforms that have pushed back and that are willing to take the risk and willing to do what they can to try to you know, eliminate sex trafficking activity from their platforms, which nobody wants. And, mm -hmm. you know, which is very difficult, frankly, for any platform to completely prohibit uh, you know, the, the vast majority of, of sex trafficking activity and, and reports all come from the large mainstream platforms and not from the adult entertainment platforms, uh, which is a, a, a real kind of disconnect that occurs in the public discourse about adult entertainment. You know, the yeah. adult websites out there that, that allow uh, creators to upload content. They, they take more care and are more rigorous in knowing who they're doing business with than any of the mainstream platforms. And you'd have to be crazy to upload illegal content or engage in sex trafficking on these large platforms that know everything about you. They know your banking account, they know your corporate information, they have every ID that you've ever produced, uh, your tax documents. You know, you, you have to be insane to, to upload illegal content or engage in illegal activity on those sites. Whereas, you know, on these large platforms, you have an email address and you're registered and it's off to the races and you can do whatever you want. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that um, you're talking about is like the, the foreclosing of like free speech on the internet. And it seems to me like Twitter has been like kind of one of those like last bastions. It's like, we're going to allow sex workers. Okay. They're going to like shadow ban us to death, but yeah. like, they're still going to like <laughs> ostensibly allow us to be there. Right. Um, what do you think that the likelihood of like Twitter, um, Following suit. Yeah, following at this point is. Yeah, well, you know, to be a, a, a bug on the wall in the meetings with their lawyers and, and you know, hear the discussions would be uh, certainly interesting in Twitter. Yeah. yeah. They don't allow direct monetization of sexually explicit content. Yeah, they, right. they allow you to but post. But they're working on that with the super follows. That's what I'm most curious about. 
that's true. That you know there there are new uh, features that they're experimenting with, and that mm-hmm. might be you know a, a, a negative, a detriment to sex workers because yeah. to the extent that that's readily allowed for all users, that's going to put them in a potentially different legal position, at least you know arguably, right. and uh, they they may make a different decision. I don't know. But yes, they, they have been kind of one of the holdouts, uh, largely because of the, the free nature of the platform and the inability yeah. to directly monetize the uploads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was my fear with the super likes. I'm like, I don't think this is good for sex work. Yeah, <laughs> like, I, uh, I, I did the application for the super follows thing. And one of the options was, are you a creator? What kind of creator? And OnlyFans was listed as an actual option. And I was like, that's exciting and in the fact that we're recognized and maybe you're working towards something for us, but that's also really concerning because that's going to jeopardize our free speech online. Right. Yeah. yeah. Will yeah. that be something that's used to, you know, readily identify those that they don't want to allow to use that feature right. is another question. Yeah. I'm wondering too, what do you think would have to happen for FOSTA-SESA to actually be overturned? Do you think that that can happen? Yes. Uh, you know, I've devoted the last two years of my life to it. And, uh, you know, <laughs> so you hope so. I really hope so. <laughs> you know, in the time that we're talking, uh, there could be an order issued by Judge Leon. You know, we're, we've been waiting for months and months for the order. All the briefs are in. Uh, there's really nothing left to do in the case. Theoretically, the court could schedule a hearing. Uh, it would probably be a, a telephonic or virtual hearing, but it could You're be You're talking about the Woodhall. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the Woodhall Freedom Foundation challenge to FOSTA SESTA that's pending in Washington, D.C., in the D.C. District uh, Courts, the federal court in Washington. And that one is <clears throat> it's ready to go. Uh, it's, you know, we're, we're waiting on a ruling. Now, ultimately, you know, we're going to have to appeal that decision or the government's going to appeal that decision, depending on which way it goes uh, yeah. to the D.C. Circuit Court, which is then going to render a ruling on it. So it's kind of a stepping stone. You know, we're certainly hopeful to get an injunction because at least at that point, FOSTA-SESTA can't be used while we litigate the case. And so, you know, I'm fine with going to an appeal if this law is on hold, so long as, you know, we're not stuck with it. Um, it's, you know, it's unfortunate that it's it's taken this long, though, because you know, it's done so much damage in the meantime, uh, because the law wasn't immediately put on hold. And unfortunately, the, the judge made the wrong decision on a, a technical issue of standing, and that caused a, you know, a year and a half delay in the case. Um, and the appellate court said, no, you know, these, these folks have standing, you need to render a decision on the merits. And now it's just a, a, the waiting game to try to you know, mm-hmm. get a ruling out of the federal court. We're hoping that will happen. It will happen any day um, because, you know, the decision is long past due. There have been some some cases that have come out that are important on uh, whether or not we win or lose. And, you know, we've been filing what are called notices of supplemental authority, basically documents that you um, send to the court saying, hey, here's something you should look at before you render a ruling. And uh, we've sent some of those in recently. Hopefully that will you know, get somebody's attention uh, at the court and you know, we'll, we'll get a ruling. But uh, for right now, you know, the litigants, uh, all we can do is wait. There's not a time frame in which the court has to rule. You know, federal judges are appointed for life and they kind of do what they want. Um, but you know, we're, we're waiting for a ruling. Hopefully it'll be in our favor. Either which way, it'll be appealed to the circuit court, maybe the U.S. Supreme Court, depending on how far it goes. But fingers crossed that uh, an injunction will come out soon. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yes, fingers are crossed. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We. Is there anything else you think that we didn't ask you about that's really important when we're thinking about FOSTA SESTA and um, Section two hundred and thirty and maybe the Earnet Act as well? Yeah. You know, I I would suggest keeping an eye on legislation impacting Section two hundred and thirty. And you know, there have been 
over what two dozen proposals uh, to try to amend or change Section 230 in some way. And most of those will likely impact the degree of sexually oriented speech that will be allowed on the internet. You know, one of the next things that they're trying to do is tie the idea of um, child pornography, underage content to another exception to Section 230. You know, they got sex trafficking and prostitution. Now they want underage content. Um, so they want more and more content moderation by the platforms. And more moderation just means more censorship, obviously. But yeah. they want you to look for more and more illegal things as a platform operator. And so, you know, watch that and and speak out, you know, speak out against it, uh, because you know, to the extent you're taking away Section 230 immunity, you're directly impacting freedom of speech online. And it's just really impressive to see the sex worker community and how their voices are, are so strong and so uh, organized in their advocacy lately. And, you know, I, I don't doubt that we will be hearing from the sex worker community if there is anything like that that's, that's proposed that will impact them. Uh, but it's just a matter of, you know, watching for it. I follow my Twitter feed, you know, other lawyers that, that follow this stuff and make sure that we're all tuned in on it because you've got to act fast. Some of these laws, you know, they get proposed and all of a sudden they're passed as part of some big omnibus spending bill or something before you really have a chance to push back on it. So timing is everything. It feels to me like, um, and this is just like one last point, it feels to me like if uh, Section 230 goes away, that the internet is just done. It's just over. <laughs> <laughs> that, that it's just going to like change so dramatically and just be corporations and just be the platforms and will no longer be the internet like as we think of it. I think that's right. I think you'll have just, you know, curated content by large mega companies and it'll be like, you know, watching network TV. Yeah. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. so it, it won't be fun. It won't be interesting. <laughs> uh, Would it be comparable to something like some of these countries that censor their internet? Would it be comparable to that? Uh, sure, we could end up with something like that. Now, you know, in the United States, you can't directly censor, the government can't censor the internet because of the First Amendment. But they can put enough pressure on private companies to do all kinds of things to avoid being sued, which is what Section 230 prevents. So it's really the linchpin. Now, you know, even if they eliminated Section 230, I would argue that the First Amendment prevents the government from imposing liability on these platforms for third party mm -hmm. speech in the first place. You know, just like the bookstore operator is not responsible for every the content oh, of every book yeah. that's sold. So those right. concepts have been built into First Amendment law already. And so, you know, God forbid Section 230 is repealed. I still think we win on the First Amendment, but Section 230 is awful nice because it's clear and it's easy for everybody to understand. It's not a amorphous, you know, constitutional concept it says, hey, you're not responsible for third party speech. End of story. Uh, so that's why it's got to be preserved. Yeah, I think that the analogy that you just made is really useful and we should highlight it, which is like do like having these platforms like moderate the speech is akin to having like a bookstore reading every single book that it brings in yeah. and deciding yeah. which moderating have yeah. and which books it can't. And that's like an outlandish idea, but it's also outlandish in an internet, uh, in the internet forum, yeah. yeah, scape as well. There should be no difference, and there isn't any difference from a First Amendment standpoint. And you're asking, you know, the the disseminator of the speech to be responsible for what third parties post and publish, and it's uh, it's wrong. It's always been wrong. It's wrong in this instance, and uh, you know, hopefully, we'll get the the court to understand that soon. Yeah, well, that's a really good note to end on. Yeah. So, where can people find you and your work, and more information about uh, what's going on with uh, your lawsuit right now? Absolutely. Um, so, FirstAmendment.com is my website, 
and uh, you can find all of our information there. Uh, I can be found on, on Twitter and social media at Walters Law Group. Mm-hmm. And uh, always happy to, to hear from your viewers and from you. And uh, please hit me up with any questions that you have or any insights and okay. happy to, to talk with you. Yeah, thank you so much. This was really, uh, really interesting and really yeah. useful. So we yeah. appreciate it. Great talking with you. Yeah, I'm so, I just like to recap, I'm so grateful for the knowledge that all three of our guests had today. I learn so much every time I talk to people who are like really in the weeds of like activism, legislation, legal arguments, like this is, I mean, I, I participate in activism, but in terms of like the legal uh, framework that's outside of my um my knowledge base and i'm so super grateful every once in a while i think i should have just gone to law school i don't know why i spent so much time in school um (laughs) because it would be so it's so useful to like our community um but yeah i mean i think it's really um it's really great to hear like everything that they're doing all the work that they're doing um to help to fight for sex worker rights and for the decriminalization of sex work and i'm just grateful for their work and also for uh the fact that they would take time out of their work to share their knowledge with us yeah to, to go on a podcast that has no episodes published and take the leap of faith of you know our reputations and, and our value it's impressive and it's yeah. it's yeah definitely grateful to all of that uh, i think one of the things that really stood out to me is the fact that like with all the things that even Larry was discussing in terms of Sestafasa and the lawsuits and the legal battles, that a lot of the things that Sestafasa claims are wins, you know, like taking down yeah. Backpage, et cetera, those aren't actual wins. Those yeah. aren't due to Sestafasa that came after. And right. it's always under the guise of trafficking where the evidence to support it just hasn't been found. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was really interesting. I mean, I knew that Backpage went down before Fosta Sesto was signed into law, but um, one of the things that Larry said that I thought I think is important to remember is that it got taken down under like laundering. Yeah. It was nothing to do with trafficking. trafficking. And um, I also think it's really important to point out that like post FOSTA SESTA, um, there has been more violence against sex mm-hmm. workers. There's uh, demonstrated, it's been demonstrated that many sex workers have died as a result of yep. people out. Um, this idea that um, these laws that are being pushed forward now, FOSTA SESTA being one of them, the Earned Act being one of them, yeah. all sorts of laws that are like um, ostensibly su- that are that are framed as anti-trafficking are actually the same laws that um that make things more unsafe for both sex workers and trafficking victims and that you know it was you know actually if we go back to um to the last episode or two episodes ago when we were talking to Maya Moreno one of the things that she was bringing up is that like these trafficking victims that um they're, they're getting arrested. You yeah. Know? Like they're the, being criminalized. They're being criminalized. They're being deported. They're being put in jail. Um, and I think that um, this, this notion that any of these laws are meant to protect, to protect anyone is outrageous. Yeah. But it's also brilliant. And I think that that's important to point out too, is that in terms of like a marketing strategy, like yeah, how can you argue against sex trafficking like yeah, or human trafficking? Yeah, you're not going to say like, and this is why I think Foster Sesta passed um, almost unanimously. Only two people voted against it out of a hundred. Um, 
is because what lawmaker is going to want to say, I stand for human trafficking. Right, or I, mean, I support, you know, <laughs> I'm not even going to say CSAM and spell it out for you because I don't want that <laughs> clip to go viral. But yeah, you can't argue against something that is across the board. No one wants to be like, no, yeah. no, no, wait a minute. Let's look closer. Right. And I think like a lot of, um, a lot of people want to make the argument that, um, you know, while it may be bad for sex workers, we're trying to save trafficking victims when, in point of fact, um, these laws are harming trafficking victims yeah. like as well. And so, and I also want to point out that these are not two discrete groups. And I think that that's yeah. also really important to say that these are, these, these lines are not drawn straight and this is a continuum and there are people who move in and out of these like categories. And so I think, um, we just need to, I, the, the motivation for us putting this episode together and actually putting this entire series together yeah. is to complicate the narratives that are being pushed and, and to kind of humanize, um, our the voices who yeah. are being impacted by it, who are sex workers. Uh, you know, what's, I, I, it's funny to think back because like when Sessa, uh, was just put out there as an idea and it was floating around. I mean, I remember it must've been like, I want to say 2012, 2013, it's blurry, but I remember understanding what was happening. And I remember thinking it was such a big deal. And this was back in the cam days, right? MFC, yeah. that's all I was doing at the time. And I did a whole cam show. I went on cam and I had duct tape over my mouth and I had duct tape over my nipples. Oh, and it wow. said uh, uh, something, it said Sessa And I did the whole cam show without talking because I'm, I was trying to get the point out about wow. being censored. I totally forgot about that. Wow. But I, yeah, we did that. And, and every fan that would come in the room and like, I'm doing this because of this. You need to yeah. pay attention to this. This affects you too. This is your yeah. freedom of speech. This is important. Yeah. And like I did that, and not that I did a lot of good. We're here now, um, but just to make <laughs> the yeah, you know, fighting the good fight. But I think it's important that people realize that they should be listening to sex workers. We are on the front lines of the way technology changes and impacts, yeah. especially free speech, yeah. and that our voices have value. We saw this coming. We warned everyone. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And and it was it was amazing. I um I remember right after Fosse Sesta passed in April. Um so it passed in at the beginning of April and like two weeks later I went to a conference that's like a tech conference and um didn't think to like propose that there be a panel on Fosta Sesta because I just assumed because in my silo everybody was like, Oh my god, the world is falling. And then I went to this tech conference not a mention of FOSTA SESTA because people who weren't sex workers were like, whatever, like, you know, and um, then I would hear people on the news or in the media or at that conference saying like, well, you know, nobody was talking about this. We're like, what? Like, <laughs> nobody. Like, yeah. are we nobody? Yeah, nobody was listening about this. We were talking about this. We were talking. Yeah. And so I think it does um, kind of drive home that, like, sex workers have always been talking about stuff. Sex yeah. workers are, I mean, it's it's an off-sided thing that sex workers are the canaries in the coal mine. Yeah. And I think that when it comes to, um, when it comes to, digital uh laws first amendment rights um all kinds of things like we really we really are and people ought to be listening to sex workers absolutely uh and i think too from just and i'm going to speak to this um from the online space because that's where my expertise is but the way sesta impacts online sex work as well is extraordinary and just mm -hmm. knowing like things that we used to do you know when i first got started as a webcam model mm -hmm. 10 years ago it was like you could do a meet and greet with your fans you can hold yeah. your own you could do a, a quote unquote date raffle, which is like meeting up for dinner with a right. fan mm -hmm. with, you know, safe people, safe space and safe people 
looking out for you. Um, but none of those things are possible anymore because yeah. we don't have the agency to make that decision ourselves. And anything that can be even slightly misconstrued as soliciting for yeah. full service, you know, prostitution right. mm-hmm. is it, it's falls under this umbrella. And even things that you wouldn't think would fall under the yeah. umbrella of Sesta Fasta do now, which is insane. Like the fact that, you know, we, I guess, what's a good example of that? Um, something that falls under Sesta that's so out of right field. Well, just uh, disseminating um, information um, about um, safe practices, for example, like harm reduction. So yeah. the the issue with Fosta Sesta, there's so many issues with yeah. Fosta Sesta, <laughs> but like one of them is that there's no definition of facilitation. So yeah. it's facilitating prostitution. Prostitution itself is a slippery term because it's defined differently in every state. But yeah. like, there's also so there's no definition of prostitution. There's also no definition of facilitation. So, what does facilitation mean? Well, it means to to help, mm-hmm. right? So, what's helping prostitution? Like, who is helping prostitution? Who's helping to make prostitution happen? Mm-hmm. Well, is it if somebody comes to me and asks, like, how do you? Um, see a safe uh, blacklist um, is giving them that information facilitating prostitution. I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You know? Um, is um, t- giving a ride to your friend so that they don't have to take public transportation in the middle of the night to their date. Um, is that facilitating prostitution? I think it would be. Um, mm-hmm. Is um, calling your partner when you get there to tell them that you're safe and them like listening out for you. Is that facilitating yeah. it? I, I got a note from OnlyFans when I, I was uh, trying to reach out to my OnlyFans members about uh, being active on Sex Panther again and yeah. using the texting and calling site for um, for my fans. And I got hit with a flag warning from OnlyFans saying that I was facilitating and that that behavior is not okay under Sessa Fasta. Wow. So I was like, okay, I just, I was advertising another platform, which that I could expect to be hit with. Yeah. yeah. Like I knew what I was doing there, <laughs> but like that part was, was really concerning to me. And, and other things that yeah. you just don't consider like if i like on only fans again because again online space but if you can't say the word meet m-e-e-t like you, right, no, you words get taken you can't say it's nice to meet you yeah and i know that because i've tried yeah. i don't mean like will you meet me tomorrow yeah. at 7-eleven <laughs> i mean like just colloquially yeah. like it's nice to meet you yeah. and they censor that they yeah. censor all kinds of things yeah and so. i don't think i don't think most fans are aware of that i don't think most just people outside of sex work are aware of that. And it's this crazy hurdle that we're jumping through because the, it's so vague. And a lot of the, that's what happens with a lot of legislation that impacts us. It's so vague and it's under the cloak of something that no one can stand up against. And that's what gets us where we are. Yeah. So on that note, (laughs) (laughs) next week we will be talking about sex work uh, in leftist circles. So that should be fun. Join us for the revolution. Yes. (laughs) Thank you for joining us on another episode of On the Horizon, a podcast about what's on the horizon for sex workers and how to navigate it. I'm Jesse Sage, and you can find me on Twitter at sapiotextual and at jessiesage.com. And I'm Melrose Michaels, and you can find me on social at Melrose Michaels and melrosemichaels.com. Remember, if you want bonus footage from today's episode, you can always subscribe to us on Anchor for $9.99 a month to access all the footage we couldn't include on today's show. Thank you.